Well, good morning. It's uh, morning. Good to see you again, and uh, thank you for being here and giving us the opportunity to be here. Uh, I'd like to turn, if we could, to First uh, Timothy, chapter four. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter four. Again, it's a passage we read last week, but uh, we would like to read it again. It says, verse 12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself, to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Our Father, again, we're grateful. The privilege this morning to see those who would hide, seek to hide your word in their hearts. Father, we're so grateful for the promises concerning your word this morning. We remember what the Lord Jesus said, that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words would never fail. Father, we give thanks this morning for the freedom we have in this country to meet in a public way, to have your word opened before us. Father, to have our own copy of your precious word. We would remember those today who don't have the same privileges, that are suffering for the cause of Christ, who may not even have their own copy of the Bible. Father, we would pray for them, remembering that we are linked to them in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that when one member suffers, we all suffer. And so, Father, we just ask that this morning, by your word, by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Just by way of review, we started on spiritual gifts last week. said at the beginning, there's no way we could cover the entire subject. It'd be impossible. There's somewhere between, um, you know, some people say as low as 17 gifts listed. And some people will tell us there's as many as 25 or more. So the idea of going through that list and, and thinking about uh, each one individually would be impossible. Uh, we said was we wanted to build a framework for our own study, something that would help us to uh, work through this on our own and determine before the Lord as a spiritual exercise what our spiritual gifts are. Um, we thought last week that uh, we began with a definition, a definition of what a spiritual gift was, and just for sake of ease, we talked about it being a special ability given by God for special service. It's supernatural. 
because it comes from God. So it's not uh, a talent. We made that distinction last week, saying that there's not some connection between uh, uh, talents and, and spiritual gifts have the same source. It's God who gives talents to people, but talents are linked with everybody's life. There's lots of talented people in the world who never attend a church. Lots of talented people in the world who don't have the Spirit of God living within them. So we made that distinction between a talent and a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift happened when you were born again, linked with your new life in Christ. Uh, we made the distinction between talents, uh, spiritual gifts, and, and um, the fruit of the Spirit. That's important to be reminded that Christian maturity is not based on giftedness, right? I mean, that's how the, the world works, right? I mean, that's the day and age in which we live, right? A hero today is who? Well, I mean, I guess think of a, think of a, a past generation. Fifty years ago, heroes were, well, we would call superheroes. I mean, uh, anybody here... His hero is Superman? Well, it's certainly not the kids. I mean, I know they're bringing this stuff back, but Superman's from a past generation, right? And, um, and Superman really was, uh, I mean, he was a great man. What did he do? Well, he went around doing good and helping people, right? Heroes today are often sports heroes. They're, they're often immoral people, right? I mean, that's just the fact. And so the youth of today are drawn not to, not to people who are in their moral character, upright, honorable. They're rich and they're successful. They're talented at whatever they do. And it's no wonder. I mean, uh, the country we live in pays their sports heroes millions of dollars to entertain. And so uh, those men are talented. Those women represent our... Nations at the Olympics, they're talented. It's not a spiritual gift. There's a distinction. Um, we talked about the importance of their study, the concept of studying spiritual gifts. We saw that the triune God was involved, right? Remember that? The triune God involved in the giving of spiritual gifts. We saw that uh, in the three of the four passages. Does anybody remember the three or the four passages? Spiritual gifts. They were? Romans 12. First Corinthians 12. First Peter 4, exactly. And so we had two twelves, two fours. Um, we saw that who was the giver in Romans chapter 12? God the Father, the giver in 1 Corinthians 12 was God the Spirit. And the giver in Ephesians 4 was God the Son. And so the triune God involved in um, the giving of gifts. We were uh, reminded from 1 Peter chapter 4 that our gift is really a stewardship. And so to say something like, uh, my gift is, well, I, you know, whatever that would fall up, my gift is, well, we would understand what a person means by that. But it's not really sound theology. Whatever your gift is, it's a gift, it's a stewardship. 
And so we uh, try to develop the idea that if we don't use it, we lose it. We thought about that and we had some uh, references to uh, back that up. All right, now here uh, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, the point we want to make from here is, um, you know, often the question I'm asked, what do you think my gift is? People ask that of me. Uh, I've been restored to the Lord since I was 32. Uh, I was saved as a young boy and and uh, had a good start in my Christian life. Uh, my parents were uh, zealous for the things of God. And then I myself, when I turned 18, got away from the things of the Lord and got a long ways away. Uh, uh, lived in sin with an unsaved girl and um, eventually married her. And, and uh, hey, eventually she became a Christian. She was saved when she was 30. And uh, the Lord used that in my life to restore me. So... Uh, I've been working through these things for 18 years, 50 now. And uh, I'm as close as I've ever been to discovering my spiritual gift. But I'm not sure what it is. And so, as I said last week, you know, Bill McDonald asked the question in the congregation, who knows what their spiritual gift is and hardly nobody puts up their hand. Well, I'm in, in that point. Or in that place in my life. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I'm starting to narrow it down by the grace of God. And that's what we have here. I'm going to tell you what my problem is. Is that I have, in the language of uh, Timothy or uh, Paul to Timothy, he says, give yourself entirely to them. this day and age in which we live, we want everything instant. And so our favorite way to do things is a survey, right? You know, the idea of getting on the Internet and answering a few questions and establishing my spiritual gift. Well, I suggest to you that's not how it works. Uh, I used the illustration last week of my wife, who, according to that, is an apostle. I'm not saying she doesn't have a spiritual gift, but I'm not still not convinced that she's an apostle. We'll think about that a little bit later, too. In fact, I'm convinced she's not. Um, but she has spiritual gifts. And so a survey is not spiritual enough to establish your spiritual gift. Paul said to Timothy, give yourself entirely to them. He says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, desire. Well, we understand that word. Hey, what you desire, you get. Right? Right? The world knows this. Uh, um, the last time we were in Florida, we were down somewhere south. It was in Miami, and there was a um, uh, a building that had a huge sign on it. It was a uh, I don't I think it was a, a sign that could change, but it was pretty clear, pretty graphic, and it had a picture of a uh, some kind of a Cadillac on it. And it said, thou shalt covet. And I thought, wow, that's good advertising. I mean, really? Why is that good? Because it works. And so, hey, GM understands if they can get you to desire something, especially a Cadillac, you'll get it. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, desire spiritual gifts. 
So my suggestion or my thought this morning is that the reason I'm unsure of it is because I haven't given myself entirely to these things. And so we want to strive for that. And so that's what we have presented to us here. Um, I guess we could add to this from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 that Timothy had people in his life who loved him, who were concerned for his spiritual well-being. Paul says that uh, he laid his hands on Timothy to identify his spiritual gift, and the elders also laid their hands on Timothy. And so I would suggest as we work through these things, we desire, we pray, we study, we have people who are spiritual in our lives who love us and know us. And we go to them. We ask them, what do they think? And so I think that's um, helpful. Again, we use the uh, quote from uh, Tiernus Wilson. He said, we, we desire first and then we discover and then we develop. And so the importance, again, of this concept of coming to understand. Hey, Timothy knew what his spiritual gift was, but it would appear that he worked in many areas. So we want to think about it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is a passage we read last week with regards to uh, the purpose of gifts for the maturity or for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. And we made the statement that if what I'm doing is not building up others, it is not exercising my spiritual gift. That's what spiritual gifts do is they edify, build up the body of Christ, those around me. All right, so it says that the risen Lord in verse 11... And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What was their purpose? What was their seer of service? What were they to be doing? Um, what does an evangelist do? In your estimation, what does an evangelist do? I ask the question of the evangelist because we know most about him in Scripture, right? Right? Of all the gifts that are listed here, we know most about the evangelist. Why is that? Well, we haven't mentioned more than the others. It's not mentioned that many times. Interestingly enough, only a few. Three times the word actually translated evangelist. But we know the most about that gift. And so what does an evangelist do? Preach the gospel. Um... I think he does. I think he preaches the gospel. But because, in the, because he's an evangelist? I suggest no. I suggest he preaches the gospel because he's a Christian. What do you think about that? Christians have been given the commission to go. Um, has anybody ever read William McDonald's little booklet, Grasping After Shadows? You seen that little booklet? It's written for college-age students. People say, um, young people say, I haven't been called to the ministry. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? I've not been called to the ministry. Actually, that's a lie. His point is, hey, you need to be called to post-secondary education. That's what you need to be called to. 
If you're going to go to post-secondary education, you need to make sure that the Lord called you to that. You're, you're not called to the ministry. You're commanded to go into the world. And so his question is, well, what don't we understand about go? What do you think go means in the original? Hey? Go. Um, I love preaching in the summer to kids and some of these words. Because uh, kids love, especially the 8 to 10, love to answer questions. And so um, I'll say to them something like, hey, the Bible says that you might know these things. Well, the Bible's written that we might know. And so I ask the question, who knows what no means? No. Yeah. And so everybody, all the kids put up their hand and that's their definition, no. Because they can't think of something more descriptive. And so there's lots of clear-cut words in Scripture. And so we're commanded to go. So I suggest to you that the evangelist, according to Ephesians chapter 4, his ministry is for what? Not for preaching the gospel. For equipping the saints for the ministry. Hey, there's no professionals in the body of Christ. Years ago, we had a um, uh, followed up the uh, the good news on the move with a, a work in Canada. I don't maybe Jay, but he maybe told you about that. He called it the Cross Canada Cruisers. Did anybody ever hear about that? The old cars. He bought the old cars and and um, we brought them out uh, to Ontario and and then got all these brothers to come and minister to these young people and uh, teach them how to go out with the gospel. And I remember the uh, first brother who gave a message. Here's a man who had been involved in preaching the gospel his whole life. And he was going to teach the young men, teach us, teach me how to make the gospel message relevant in the lives of people. Uh, he had a huge radio ministry, and I, I thought to myself, man, this brother has a lot to offer. You know what his opening line was? He says, hey, just so you understand, I ain't no professional. I thought, well, even his grammar is not that good. But his point was, we aren't professionals. Although we live in the day of everybody's an expert, that doesn't apply the New Testament church. We are all ministers. And so the evangelist, I suggest again, preach the gospel because of the commission. Now, he definitely would have been skilled at it. We understand that he had a spiritual gift, possibly for making the gospel uh, easy to understand. But he then used that ministry, according to Ephesians 4 here, to equip the saints for the ministry. So we want to think about that a little bit. So again, we can go back to the book of Acts and, and think through these concepts. Uh, it says there's an order here, apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists. So uh, the question was asked last week. I think it's a good question. Do apostles exist today? What do you think about that? I mean, hey, in evangelical Christianity, so-called evangelical Christianity, they do, mm-hmm. right? Right? They're everywhere. Is it biblical? Well, it's an easy one really to answer because, hey, Acts chapter 1 gives us the qualifications of an apostle. What were they? Does anybody know by heart? What were the 
qualifications of an apostle. Do you remember? Okay, well, let's, let's turn back there. Keep your finger here and let's turn back. Acts chapter 1. Uh, As the men are uh, Peter and the early apostles uh, trying, uh, seeking to replace Judas, that's the concept, that's what's happening historically here in the end of Acts chapter 1. So Peter gives the qualifications in verse 21, Acts 1. Therefore, of these men, notice this, who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in, And out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Do you think there's apostles today? There can't be. It's impossible. According to Acts chapter 1, they had to see the miracles of the Lord Jesus. They had been around while all these things were happening. They had to see him in his resurrection. Did Paul qualify? Mm-hmm. Paul qualified. Oh, he was very aware. Very aware of the works and ministry of the Lord Jesus. He knew what he was capable of doing and the things he'd accomplished. He, he was... In the words of the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 9, fighting against him. Actually, he saw him in resurrection power on the road to Damascus. And so he was qualified, New Testamently qualified, to be an apostle. And so uh, in Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, uh, Paul tells us earlier in the, in the passage, or sorry, earlier in the book of Ephesians, that they were for the foundation, right at the beginning. Um, I guess the, the point out there is that people feel we need an apostle. But do we? Do we need apostles today? Well, we don't. Why? Because we have, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we have the apostles' doctrine, the things they taught. Everything that they wrote and taught to the New Testament churches we have recorded for us in the Word of God. So apostles were for the foundation. Paul links prophets prophets to that as well. Those able who come behind and had a message uh, directly from God. Those things don't exist today. Men who have a message they would say from God that goes contrary to the word of God is not a message from the Lord. What we say has to be backed up by the word of God. And then we start, of course, evangelists, which we've already thought about pastors, teachers, again, for the equipping of the saints for their ministry. And so that's what pastors do. They teach the saints how to shepherd others because there's lots of shepherding required in the body of Christ, right? There's lots of gospel work to be done. There's lots of teaching to be done. And so the saints need to be equipped for this ministry. And so in Ephesians 4, the risen Lord gave men to the church to help accomplish this purpose. So let's turn back and think about uh, these concepts a little bit further back and go to the book of Acts to chapter um, 6. 
Acts chapter 6 uh, is an important passage. Peter basically, and we said this last week, divides the groups into two categories. Does anybody remember that? The two categories, what were they? Did we say that? Did we say that last week? Yeah, okay. Uh, what were the two categories according to 1 Peter chapter 4? They were speaking and serving or ministering. Um, this concept of uh, ministering is a gift in Romans chapter 12. We read it last week. Ministering according to faith, to the faith that's been given to you. What is a minister? What is a minister? Uh, if you would go out and say to somebody, my minister, what would they think? Well, they would think of the person standing up here, right? Whatever that is, that person that has some kind of a, a position over or maybe responsible for the uh, preaching of the word. Is that biblical? Well, uh, in Acts chapter 6, we have this important passage. It's important because it's how the work of God moved forward in the days of the apostles. We saw all these conversions, uh, 3,000, about 3,000, about 5,000 in a multitude, and then there's a hitch in the work of God, a, a hindrance. And so that's what we read. It says, now in the days, verse 1, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually, notice this, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so what is a minister, according to Acts chapter 6? You know, I appreciate... Um, uh, Mr. Zodiades, and they quoted him last week. He's a Greek scholar, and he says he appreciates the work that the translators did with the King James. They took and they translated the original language into English. And he said they did a good job. Um, it reads well, it's easy to memorize, it flows. And he said they used, for all intents and purposes, the king's English, the queen's English. And so they were careful um, often not to repeat words. He said, sadly, rather than that being a help, it became a bit of a hindrance. Because this is not, this idea of ministry of the word, that's the word we have in Romans chapter 12. The gift of ministry, it's not the first time it's used in this passage. Where's the first time it's used in this passage, do you think? It's not ministry of the word. It's in verse 2. Who'd like to take a stab at it? Hey? Serve. 
serve what? Serve tables. The ministry of the word and the ministry of serving tables, they're exactly the same. In fact, it came a point in the work of the apostles where the work couldn't move forward because of the ministry of the tables. It's actually what moves the work forward. Hey, um, so we think about the cross of the Lord Jesus and the, uh, as we sang this morning, the power in the blood and the cross of the Lord Jesus. I love to think about the hardest people in Jerusalem being converted at Calvary. You think that's true? I think it is. Um, I mean, there were two thieves. Hey, were they hard men? Think they were hard men? No. <laughs> I think they were hard men. Hey, they were insurrectionists. They weren't just thieves and murderers. They were insurrectionists. They fought against the Roman authority. I'm going to suggest to you at least half of them were saved. But probably more because there was actually three of them, right? Barabbas was the ringleader of the three. You think he's in heaven? You think Barabbas is in heaven? Well, Jesus Christ took his place on the cross. That's what he did for you, for me. And, and so I suggest, I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I have trouble believing that Barabbas never went to Calvary and, and with his eyes wanted to see the man who took his place. I, I can't imagine that he wouldn't. And so I'm going to be surprised if when I get to heaven that Barabbas isn't there. But one we know is, so at least half, more likely two-thirds, uh, outside of the thieves, who do you think is the hardest man there? Well, I suggest the Roman centurion, the man responsible for the crucifixion of every enemy of the government of Rome. Think he's a hard individual? Calloused? Yeah, he's calloused. Is he in heaven? Uh, his confession was surely this is a righteous man I suggest he's in heaven um, hey the ones responsible for the murder of the prince of life we were reminded of that verse this morning they murdered the prince of life are they in heaven you think they are many of them you think that's speculation? Uh, no, it, hey, Acts 6, verse 7, what's it say? I'll read it to you. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And look, notice this, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Hey, a large multitude of those who were at Calvary were converted. How? The ministry of tables. 
That's what moved the work forward. The ministry of the deacons. Um, Hey, we have this great list of, of men. Men filled with the Holy Spirit. And we said last week, that's a prerequisite for any service. Hey, it's not just for service up here. For any service in the body of Christ, men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. And so these men were filled with the Holy Spirit and God moved in a mighty way as they served tables. And it was that that saw all these priests converted to the Lord Jesus. Um, I think it begins to possibly answer the question of, um, can my gifts change? Uh Maybe they can. Or, or maybe it's that they, that they possibly lie in nucleus and, and that they grow at a later date. I'm not sure how it works. But Philip, the man who started out here as a deacon, serving tables, hey, he became a, an evangelist. The only man in Scripture called an evangelist. But it's not here in Acts 6. It's not in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is when he goes forth with the gospel to the eunuch. Um, It was in the context of him already being pushed out uh, to Samaria because of the persecution of the church in Rome. Our story in Jerusalem by the Apostle Paul. I mean, hey, that's what the next chapter is about. How Stephen, man who was a deacon, became a preacher, finally made it to the top. Got an opportunity to preach one message. <laughs> Didn't quite get to the end of it. And gave his life. Became the first martyr of the New Testament church. Uh, that's a graphic scene at the end of chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is, I think they say in the New Testament, 27 times the right hand the Father is mentioned. 27 times the right hand of the Father is mentioned. 25 times. You know what the Lord Jesus is doing? He's seated. He's only standing twice. And it's both the end of Acts chapter 7. He's standing to witness the death of the first New Testament martyr. It's not a New Testament idea. The Psalms tells us that precious in the eyes, the Lord of the death of his saints. And so Stephen starts out as a deacon, gets an opportunity to preach. He's gone. Philip starts out as a deacon, has pushed out by persecution, goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel. Thousands, that's the word, thousands are getting saved. It's multitudes. The Lord calls him in the middle of the night to go down. Preach the gospel to a lone black man in the middle of the desert. Man who traveled 1,400 miles one way to meet the living God. And Philip has the opportunity of pointing him to Christ. He's converted. He's not called the evangelist there. It's not till Acts chapter 21. He's living in Caesarea at this point. He has a house. He has four daughters. 
Then he's called Philip the Evangelist. And I suggest that it fits with what we're thinking from Ephesians 4. And now he's equipping the saints for their own ministry. And so the whole concept of gifts is for the building up of the body. My gift, if it's used, is to help others. That's the point. And if it's not helping others, it's not the exercise of spiritual gift. All right, Acts, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, just seed thoughts. Um, that's all we have time for. The idea of preaching that doesn't stimulate questions, I don't think is effective. So we want to be stimulated to asking questions. To be at the end of a message and have lots of questions is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So I'm not professing to be able to answer all your questions with regards to spiritual gifts, but just trying to bring forth some ideas that will stimulate our thinking. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, we emphasized last week, and again we want to emphasize this. There's 20 or 31 verses in chapter 12. 31 verses. How many of the verses have to do with the list or the lists of spiritual gifts? How many? Well, uh, let's look at it. Um, Okay, well, verse 7. Verse 7 isn't about the list of gifts, is it? But verse 8 is. Uh, Verse 9 is, right? Is that right? Verse 10. Um, Verse 11, well, it's questionable. I would say no, but it doesn't have a list. It doesn't have a name, but it's linked with it. But the whole chapter is linked with spiritual gifts. So that's three. Then we come to the end, and we have verse... Um, well, 27 is about the body of Christ. Verse 28 is about a list of gifts. Um, verse 29 is, and verse 30, maybe verse 31. So of 31 verses, and that's not including chapter 13 and chapter 14, which still have to do with how these gifts are ministered have to do with lists. So the Apostle Paul doesn't emphasize the gifts specifically. What he does is, is emphasize how these things work together. He's dealing with the problem in the Corinthian church of schisms. Right? How the saints are rather than being united and joined together in the body... The one body, they're, they're schisms. So Paul's point is, hey, that doesn't happen in the physical body. It doesn't work. It just doesn't happen. So it shouldn't happen in the spiritual body. That's what he talks about. Uh, verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. One of the problems in the New Testament church is you guys just don't worry enough. What do you think about that? You just don't worry enough. Probably it's because we've heard all these messages that we shouldn't worry. Right? Was Paul a worrier? Was he? Hey, he was a worrier. 
You believe that? He kept himself up at night worrying. Not about himself. Hey, he'd learned in the body to be content and to trust the Lord, but he worried about the saints. Did Timothy worry? Did he? You know, it's interesting, again, when we do a word study and, and the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, don't worry. And then we hear Paul talking about his worry. I mean, he had this list at the end of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. What was his biggest worry? Do you know that verse? What was his biggest worry? It's the same word as be anxious for nothing in Philippians. Second Corinthians chapter 11. My deep worry, he says in verse 28. My deep worry for the churches. He says in, in, uh, in the sending of Timothy, Epaphroditus, that he had nobody he could send that was worried like he was about the well-being of the New Testament assembly. And so, hey, the problem is that often I'm worried about myself. And that's a problem. That's, actually, that's a command not to do that. That's wrong. But worried about others? Biblical. And so it's interesting. We understand the principle in, in the idea of the body. Hey, if we've got a heart problem or an inner organ problem, we worry about that. We think about that stuff. And it's good, right? It's been built into the body. It's a safety mechanism. Well, that should apply to the body of Christ. And it's linked in this passage with gifts. And so it's not so much the list of what they are, but how they operate. Then he brings in suffering. Our view of suffering. What is our view of suffering? It's good, right? It's good to suffer. Isn't it? Hey, everything worth anything in life came from suffering. Think that's true? Hey, your liberty this morning, where'd that come from? Hey? From suffering, not yours, somebody else's. Somebody suffered for your liberty. Um, hey, the hymns you sing. Think they come from suffering? You think they do? When peace like a river attendeth my way. You ever heard this hymn? When do you hear it? Hey? This morning. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot. Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How was Horatius taught that? Do you think? From a book? When I say in 1871, he was a wealthy businessman in Chicago. Fire swept through the city and devastated his business. He owned mostly real estate. It all burned to the ground. 1873, he went to go on a family holiday and go over to Europe and, and um, help Mr. Moody and 
what turned out to be a huge revival. The last moment he couldn't go, and so he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead. And you know that halfway across the Atlantic, they were hit by a British ship. Can you imagine the size of the ocean and two ships colliding? And it's not like the freeway in Miami. And um, the ship that his family and daughters were on went down. His wife, they say, was found unconscious floating on a block of wood. Nine days later, she got ashore and sent a telegram to her husband, saved alone. What should I do? Horatius went to join her, and they say that somewhere over where his four daughters passed, in his words, into the arms of Jesus, he penned those words. They say that he uh, they had a son three years later named Horatius. He went to heaven when he was four. So when he says, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Hey, it comes from suffering. Hey, you came into the world, the travail of another. Their sorrow and their suffering, it is linked to gifts, to the body of Christ. When one member suffers, we all suffer. And so we are not independent. Hey, when one member falls, we are all affected by that. Right? Hey, you know that you've tried to share the gospel in the workplace, not because you're an evangelist, but because you're trying to fulfill the commission. Trying to be obedient to the Lord Jesus, and then your friend or co-worker has some Christian minister who's been in a place of prominence, and he's fallen into moral sin. And it's affected your testimony with them. Bill McDonald says, and I think it's powerful, you, me, as an assembly, we are only as strong as our weakest member. What do you think about that? Paul says, hey, in the human body, you wouldn't cut it off. Right? You wouldn't. If you did, you could never be the perfect man. I mean, we have all kinds of these stories of people who've been able to accomplish great things with, uh, you know, in blindness and, and those things. But they're not the perfect person. That's the goal. The New Testament church, Paul says in Ephesians 4, till we come to the perfection, the perfect man, to perfect maturity. How does it happen as we minister our gifts one to another? What are they? Well, there's a few lists. You can work through it read a book about it if you desire it you will again we said at the beginning whatever you desire we, we, we get that and so if I really want to know what my spiritual gift is there's lots of ways to work towards that and so again hey our time is gone it doesn't answer all the questions hey hopefully it creates some uh, for you for after after the next meeting I hope you're not going to be asking me a bunch of hard questions because um as I said last week, I don't have answers. I mostly have questions. Hey, if you think you know what my spiritual gift is, come and see me after. I'd be glad to hear. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're 
uh, grateful for your word. Uh, we're thankful for how it is designed by your Holy Spirit to change us. Father, we've been reminded this morning that we are not people quick to change. But Father, our desire is that today we would go home a different way than we came. You would have, by your Holy Spirit, ministered your word to our hearts. Father, thank you for the assembly here, for the testimony. Father, for each family, each individual. Father, we pray for your richest blessing in each life. Bless our time of fellowship, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.